Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. We are glad that you are with us this morning as, as we come and we worship our God, as we sing to him, and as we sit under his word. And the portion of his word that we'll be considering this morning is uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's also printed in your order of service. Uh, Exodus 20, you recall, is uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And I said last week that the Ten Commandments can be summarized under, under the two headings of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That I know there's overlap between those two principles, but, but really that that's what they embody, that we shall love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our might, and we shall love our neighbor as ourselves. And we began considering what it looks like to love our neighbor last week by thinking about uh, how we are to honor those in authority over us, our parents, those uh, in the places of our work, our politicians, the church, how we are to honor those in authority over us. But this morning, we consider how we love our neighbor as ourself by the pro promoting and preserving of life, uh, because our passage this morning is the sixth commandment. So if you would follow along in your Bible or your order of service, Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would lead us in the way that we are to go, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts, and that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing to you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. You shall not murder. It's pretty easy, pretty simple enough, right? I mean, I would venture to say uh, that probably the majority of us, if not all of us, have never broken that commandment, right? None of us have actually committed that crime, you shall not murder. And so maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, this is, this is simple enough, those few words. I mean, amen and amen, pastor, go ahead and pray and let's, let's just head on home. <laughs> but we know that there's much more depth to this commandment, and not just this commandment, but all of them. You shall not murder is just simply the, the surface, that there is something much deeper going on in the midst of this commandment. And not just this commandment, but all of the commandments. There is the, the basic level of understanding, but then there is something that is rooted much deeper in it that we are to understand. You shall not murder. You know, this past week I was thinking about spring. Just a couple days ago, we had a quick taste of spring. Yesterday, we had a rude awakening that it's not spring, and today it's spring-like again. But, but I, I think about spring, and when I think of spring, I think of my yard and what I get to do in my yard. I say get to, not have to, because I actually enjoy working in my yard. I, I like trying to take the grass and make it look green and filling in those spots with new grass. And, and I love the way that the yard looks after you've mowed it. You know, how, how clean and pristine it looks. I, I like a nice-looking yard, a nice-looking bed of grass. But it also means that I hate weeds. I despise them. I hate them. I mean, Thomas and I have had these conversations before. I, I cannot stand weeds. And kids, I know you like them, right? Like dandelions are cool if you're a kid because you get pick them and you rub them on the bottom of your chin, right? Do you all do this? No. 
just me, maybe, okay? So you rub them, and it kind of turns your face yellow, and it gives off that smell, and, and they turn white, and kids, you take them, and you blow them, and you watch all those little white petals fly away, and you're laughing and clapping, and it's really fun. It's, it's your greatest dream, but it's my worst nightmare because I'm seeing those things fly and thinking, more dandelions, right? Those are just the seeds that are going to drop, and they're going to start poking through because I know that they're going to poke through. Right? The weather is going to warm, we're going to get some more rain, and before long, those little yellow flowers are going to poke through our grass, and we're going to have to do something with them. Now, maybe some of y'all just let them take over. Who cares? We'll just let them be, but I can't do that. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's not just that I won't. It's like there's something ingrained in me. I can't. Like, I can't let them take over my yard, and so, so you get out your lawnmower and you start cutting them, right? You hack off those heads, and, and you love to watch them just dying and withering away in the yard, at least I do. My, my kids do now. They've learned. They pick out the weeds and go, ew, gross, and they throw them away. The proverb is right if you train up your child, right? <laughs> They're doing exactly what I expect them to do. But, but we know that if you cut off the tops of the dandelions, you'll look back at the end of your lawn mowing experience and your yard will look great but a day or two later you pull back into your house after work you come out in the morning and what do you see those yellow little flowers coming back up through the ground and so you cut them off again and you keep doing it again and again and yet they keep coming back again and again and again you can't kill them you're trying to kill them but but all you're doing is really just cutting off the tops you have to get at the root if you want to kill a dandelion and make sure it never comes back, you have to kill it at the root. So you have to dig it up or you have to spray it so that, so that not only will the root die, but also the flower will die with it. And that's kind of like what the commandments are like. You see, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, that's kind of just the flower. Murder is just the flower that sticks up above the surface. You see, if we're really going to kill murder... If we're going to be done away with this sin, if we are going to obey this commandment, we can't just be concerned with the surface level. We have to get to the root of this commandment. And that's where I want us to begin this morning. The root of murder. And if we're going to get at the root of murder, we have to know what murder is. See, some older translations say you shall not kill. Maybe some of you in your Bibles, that's what it says. The King James Version and some other translations put that, you shall not kill. And so that can imply that all killing is biblically prohibited, right? That there's no self-defense, no capital punishment, no wars, that none of, no killing at all. As though it's advancing some sort of Judeo-Christian pacifism. But that's not what this word means, it doesn't just mean kill, generally speaking. You see, in the Hebrew, there are a couple different words that can translate to kill or to take someone's life. There's the general sense, you shall not kill, but then there's also the sense that is speaking about taking one's life, the life of one who is innocent, be it premeditated or manslaughter or even one's own negligence. And that's what the word is here. You see, this word isn't just speaking about killing, generally speaking, it's talking about murder, the destruction of the innocent life, one who is innocent before the law. And so this isn't talking about prohibiting self-defense or a just war. In fact, the Bible has allowance for both of those. 
that, that if someone comes into your house, the law tells us, comes into your house in the middle of the night and it is dark and you don't know who they are and you defend yourself and he dies, then you're not to be held liable. It's self-defense. The Bible allows for those, but, but that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about self-defense. It's not talking about just war. It's talking about taking the life of an innocent person. Now, now this, is, this isn't very revolutionary to us. Every single one of us would agree we should not murder, right? Even if you're not a Christian here this morning, if we polled all of our neighbors, we took a poll of Roanoke and asked, who is for murder? <laughs> like, who's going to say that? Like, I'm going to elect the official who presents himself as being for murder, right? Of course not. A hundred out of a hundred people are going to say they are against murder, right? We know that. We know that. In fact, we use that as the line between good and evil. We'll say things like, well, I'm not that bad, right? Like, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I've never murdered someone. Because we know to murder is really bad. All these other things, they're not as bad, but, but to murder is really, like, that is the line that we draw between good and evil. But, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a Russian uh, writer, he talked about this line between good and evil. He experienced uh, the heinous crimes of the Soviet Union firsthand. He witnessed them. He saw them. He wrote against them, and he was imprisoned for it. And so Solzhenitsyn, he looks at the world. He looks at the, the heinous crimes that he has observed in the Soviet Union, and he wrote this. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. So do you hear what he's saying? Let's just find all the evil people, all the really bad people. Let's just find all those people and we'll stick them on an island somewhere. We'll get them away from us. We'll, we'll destroy them. We'll put an end to them. And then basically all our problems will go away, right? Evil will be done with. But he continues on. He didn't stop his writing there. He says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Did you hear what he said? The line dividing good and evil, it isn't just out there. It cuts through the heart of every human being. It's, it's right here. Now, how could he say that? Well, Solzhenitsyn can say that because he understood, he knew that, that sin, all sin, including the sin of murder, is not just a problem outside us, but it's a problem inside us. You see, to get at the root of this commandment, we need not only know what murder is, but we need to know where it begins. And where it begins is inside our hearts. It begins in our very hearts. It's what Matthew, Jesus is getting at. Matthew 5, it's printed in your order of service there. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving his sermon on the mount. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking the different laws and he's helping the people to understand how they misappropriated those laws, that, that they were only concerned with the surface level, but Jesus is pressing deeper and deeper into the heart of the matter. And what he says in Matthew 5 is this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
Jesus isn't content with letting us just kind of live on the surface of this commandment. He's wanting us to see where it actually begins. Anger and insults, you fool. Now, what kind of anger is Jesus talking about? Because it could sound like he's saying that we should never be angry. That, that we should never be concerned with that emotion that erupts in our hearts when we see unjust and wicked deeds. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying all anger is sinful or leads to murder. In fact, we know in Ephesians chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul says, be angry and do not sin. And Jesus himself showed anger, right? When he went into the temple and he cast out the money changers and he toppled over their tables. And in John 11, he was angry with death itself. See, there is righteous anger, anger that's opposed to the evil in this world, anger that is opposed to oppression, anger at those things and those people that would challenge God's rule and his reign, right? Like what we just saw this past week in Florida, it would be right for us to be angry at that wickedness, at the evil that was perpetrated there, to, to just simply ignore it or to pass it over. That isn't the godly response. The innocent lives would be destroyed in such a manner it should cause us to be angry at that sort of injustice and the destruction of God's image bearers. Now, there are times when anger is appropriate, but that's not the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. No, he's not talking about righteous anger. He's talking about unrighteous anger. He's talking about a posture and a perspective that devalues and dehumanizes a person. I mean, you hear the language, anger and insults and you fool. Insults and you fool. It's getting at the perspective of the one who's saying these things or saying these words about someone who they believe is worthless. These words are being used to express contempt for a person's being. A contempt that is the beginning of murder. First John 3, the Apostle John says that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You see, the root of it is that you may have never killed someone physically. But according to the Bible standard, your thoughts, your words, your looks, they have killed. And they do. They will kill. You see, this commandment isn't just concerned with the physical act of murder, but it's concerned with our heart. And when we consider it from that perspective, then we all know that we have harbored unrighteous anger in our hearts against our brother. That every one of us has been guilty of this. And so we have to confess and repent and ask God to forgive us for our murderous thoughts. For our words and the desires that we hold in our hearts. Because with our hearts, we have devalued life. Well, that's the other side of the coin. You see, with every one of these commandments, there's a prohibition, but, but the other side of that prohibition is an encouragement, an encouragement to embody a different way of living. So if we are to resist murder, if we are to put that aside, we are to respond by valuing life. And that's the second thing I want us to see. Not just the root of murder, but that this commandment calls us to the valuing of life. And the reason why we are to value life is because all man... 
Humanity is made in the image of God. You see, that's what makes murder so heinous. It is destroying those who have been made in God's image. And we see this countless times throughout Scripture, this concern for the image-bearingness of man. So in Genesis chapter 9, you remember Noah comes out of the ark, and God says to him, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You see what he's saying there? He's saying you shall not kill, you shall not murder, you shall not shed blood, because those to whom you are shedding their blood, they are made in my image. And in James chapter 3, we're told that it's wrong to curse another man, for man is created in the image of God. You see, we are to value life because life reflects the image of our Lord. The Imago Dei, that is the Latin phrase that theologians use to speak of the image of God. The Imago Dei is such a significant quality of man that even men that aren't living in accord with this imageness are still deserving of dignity and value. The Dutch theologian Joachim Dauma, he put it this way. He said, man's unique status and special calling should be enough to keep us from attacking his life and from cursing him. And so the way that we value life is by promoting it and protecting it. We promote and we protect life. And so we oppose and we we speak out against those practices that destroy life. And so I want us to think about this in in three different stages of life. Okay, I want to think about the promoting and the protecting of life in in three different stages. And, And the different stages are the unborn, the living, and the aging. Okay? I couldn't think of a better term for the, the middle because all those people are living, but, but it's like most of us, okay? We're the living and the aging, okay? So the unborn, the living, and the aging. I want us to think about that. And what I'm talking about is challenging the cultural, per, uh, cultural perceptions and cultural practices of abortion and suicide and euthanasia. Now, listen, I, th- this is weighty, right? Like abortion and suicide and euthanasia, these are weighty topics, but we have to deal with them because, sadly to say, in our world, life becomes expendable when it's inconvenient and when it's difficult or when life becomes burdensome. And so, so as Christians, we have to promote life and not affirm the destruction of life. And for thousands of years, the church has spoken with a unified voice about these issues. And so, there's an orienting verse that I think that helps us to think about all three of these stages. And this passage comes from Psalm 139. In verse 13 and following the psalmist David, he sings to God, he sings, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. From my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were, there was none of them. Now, David is writing this beautiful psalm, this wonderful psalm. And he's clearly talking about the, the value of life, even in its earliest stages. Um, if, if you've had a baby recently and I've come and I've visited you in the hospital, 
there's a good chance this is the actual passage I read to you that I read before I prayed with you and your child because, because it is so beautiful. You formed my inward parts. Did you hear that? God knitted us together in our mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This passage is affirming the, the beauty, the dignity of life even before that life has breathed its first breath. The theologian John Calvin said this way, he said, The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. The value of life, even in its most beginning stages, that we are to value all life, this is why I'm so thankful for ministries like the Blue Ridge Women's Center. Right? I, I told Carrie I was going to mention them this morning. I mean, this wonderful center, this group of people that are seeking to, to help women who are contemplating what to do with unexpected pregnancies. They're, they're seeking to give them help and, and compassion. They're seeking to love them and care for them and give them another option. But what is wonderful, what I love about them is they're not simply denouncing the evils of abortion and the need to preserve this life, but then after the life is preserved, they walk with them. They care for the mother and for the child. They're providing diapers and wipes and clothing and support and counsel. They're, they're continuing to walk with them and preserving that life even after that life has been protected. It is beautiful. And that is what we are to do. And we value life before it's born, but also life after it's born. Now, in our cultural moment, we live at a time where the world tends to romanticize and declare courageous the act of suicide. Right? Shows are made all about it. This is ways that people can get vengeance upon those who have hurt them. It encourages this and encourages when life becomes burdensome, euthanasia and the destruction of life at old age. But life is valuable even in the darkest moments of life. And life is, has sanctity and is valuable even in the last days of life. And so when I speak about resisting euthanasia, because some of us have to think about this, we're thinking about now because of our own parents as they age, or because maybe you yourself are aging, you're thinking about those end-of-life times. And so maybe we're thinking, what, what is that going to look like? What are the decisions we're going to have to make? Now, when, when I speak about resisting euthanasia, I'm not talking about letting death take its course. So, for instance, when my mom contracted cancer, when she was near the end of her life, it was clear that cancer was going to win, that her body was going to succumb to it, that, that she would not have victory over it on this side of the grave. And so there came a time where she decided that she wasn't going to take chemo or radiation any longer. And she was going to let life and death run its course. Friends, that, that's not what I'm talking about. It's allowing someone to die with true dignity. Allowing death to, to take its natural course. What I'm talking about when I say resisting euthanasia is taking life prematurely. 
that that's not what we're to do. That we are not to stop life before life was intended to stop. I mean, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, David said that. That's not true just of the baby. It's not just true of the healthy. It's not just true of the strong. It's true of those who are breathing their last. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The image of God does not stop just as sickness takes your body. And we are to resist that. We are to resist it because we see this being perpetrated in other countries and in our own. That when a family member ages, instead of valuing them into the end, our culture determines to end that life. And friends, that is not honoring them. And it is not honoring the image of God. And it is not honoring our Lord. We don't seek to destroy life, but, but to protect it. To preserve it, no matter what stage of life we are in. Now, I know this is heavy. I know that, uh, that these are things that, that maybe we, we don't think much about or often about. But I also know that in a room this size, let me just say I would be shocked. I would be shocked if there wasn't at least one or two or a handful of us who haven't experienced the effects of abortion or the darkness of suicidal thoughts. And so let me just say, I want you to hear this, and this is not minimizing sin. But I want you to know that, friends, there is grace and there is mercy for the broken spirit and the contrite heart. There is grace and there is mercy for those who are ashamed of the things that they have done or ashamed of the thoughts that they have thought. See, we are to be a church, a people that lives out truth the truth of the gospel, and the grace of the gospel. That we live out both of those things, and we live them both out because we have a Savior whose death brought salvation for those who have sinned and who are ashamed of what they have done or what they are contemplating doing. And so if you are burdened, if you are weighed down by the shame associated with abortion, do not keep that hiding. Expose that to the light. Confess it to Christ and know that, that even for you there is grace. Or if you are living in the place of personal darkness and emotional despair, that is not necessarily a sign of lack of faith. You, do you know I could point to you countless pastors throughout history whose lives were marred by depression? Poets that we sing and we quote who considered taking their own lives. Poets that we sing in this church. If your life is marked by personal darkness and emotional despair, if taking your own life is something you've thought about in the past or even today, then, friend, you do not have to carry that burden on your own. Tell someone, please, tell me or an elder. Tell a close friend or a family member. Tell a counselor. But, 
But do not allow darkness to reign in your life. Confess those things. And know that the image of God of which you are made, of which we all are made, the image of God is too valuable to be destroyed. But that it is something that we are to preserve and to protect. That there is grace and there is mercy for you. Even in the midst of darkness, there is grace and there is mercy for you. See, we are to preserve life and protect it. Friends, that is what we see throughout Scripture. We could point to countless occasions in which the preserving and the protecting of life is is put forth. When David could have killed Saul in the cave, you remember? He snuck up behind him, this man who wanted to end his life, but he just cut his robe. He could have killed him, but he chose not to. When Moses asked for the Lord to let him die, but God would not allow that to happen, but he protected and preserved his life. When Jesus called his disciples to sheathe their swords, even though he was being arrested. We see it time and again throughout Scripture, God's heart to protect and to preserve his image. And we see it most clearly in the loss of Christ's life. You see the preservation and the protecting of life, the valuing of life is seen most clearly in the cross when Jesus gave of his life. You remember as Jesus was being killed, as he was hanging on the cross, this one who was completely innocent, who before the law had never broken it, this one who should never have been judged or brought under wrath or punishment. As he hung on the cross, what did he do? He did not bring down wrath and judgment upon those who killed him, but he prayed to God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think about that. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was praying for the people who were murdering him. You see, in order to value and preserve life, the life of those who have broken and would break the sixth commandment, Jesus gave his own life. Christ was killed because of our sin so that we would not die, but we would have life. I mean, these are words that we sing of, right? That beautiful song that we sing, how deep the Father's love for us. You know those verses, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, it was my sin that held him there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It was my sin and yours, our murderous thoughts, the desires of death in our hearts. It was because of our sin that Christ went to the cross, that he was murdered so that we Murderers would be forgiven. And so, commandment breakers, murderers, image bearers, come to the Lord full of confession. Come to our Savior repenting of your sin. Come to our Lord trusting in Christ who valued life, who valued your life so much that he would give of his own. Amen. Father, we do ask that you would move us towards yourself, 
that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you and we would find mercy and grace, that we would find hope and peace, that we would come out of the darkness of shame, that we would come out of our sinful thoughts, that we would take all of our thoughts and our desires and our actions and we would lay them before you and know that you, Lord Jesus, say, Father, forgive them. And because of what you have done, we are forgiven. And so let us receive that and cling to it. Let us hold fast to that truth that you have saved those that you have made in your image and that you are remaking us into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray and God's people said together, Amen.